Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Chiara Russo-Kraus, a researcher at the University of Naples Federico II. Her new book, Wundt, Avenarius, and Scientific Psychology, A Debate at the Turn of the 20th Century, is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. At the start of the 19th century, the field that we now call psychology was still the branch of philosophy that studied the soul. How did psychology come to define itself as a separate area of inquiry, and how did it come to be a science? In her new book, Russo-Krauss considers the conceptual foundations of psychology as a science in the conflicting views of Wilhelm Wundt and Richard Avenarius. Wundt established the first psychology lab, but continued to see psychology as a science of self-observation, while the philosopher Avenarius embraced the emerging materialistic perspective in which the same physical methods that had just been successfully applied to explaining life could also be used to explain conscious experience. Rousseau-Krauss makes clear the major role that Avenarius plays in the shaping of psychology into the science that it is today. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Chiara. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hello, Carrie, and thank you for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to talking about your book on Wundt, Avenarius, and Scientific Psychology. Um, it's, it's a really interesting look at one of the seminal debates, I guess, in the whole idea of separating psychology from philosophy, where it was once, as you put it, the branch of philosophy that studied the soul. But before we get into the book itself, um, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your interests in philosophy and then how you came to write the book? Yeah, my interest in philosophy is a uh pretty easy to explain since uh, I just uh, got interested in philosophy when I was in high school. So I decided uh, to study philosophy at the university. And uh, then uh, I got a PhD in philosophy and uh, it's been uh, my job uh, since then. So, and now I'm a researcher. And uh, I always studied and worked in Naples, which uh, I think it's uh, pretty important for my education since uh, uh, here in Naples, we have a, a strong tradition in the history of philosophy. So uh, I think I might say that uh, I was trained as an historian of philosophy. So my approach to philosophy, it's an historical approach. And uh, I think you can see that uh, in my book, uh, too, since it's uh, like uh, a crossroad between uh, history, history of philosophy, history of psychology. and uh, But... Uh, uh, if I can say, I think that uh, often people uh, like confuses uh, uh, 
two kinds of history of philosophy because there is like uh, the history of philosophy that you find uh, in textbooks uh, and the handbooks uh, and is usually like intended for a, a big audience uh, or uh, for uh, like uh, divulgative purpose and uh, this kind of philosophy generally is like a big summary of many philosophers so it must have uh, like a generic approach and the people that write this kind of history obviously cannot have like a, a complete knowledge of every philosopher they deal with in their book. So it's like often the, some kind of indirect uh, uh, knowledge of this philosopher. And it's like uh, a little bit in the, uh, like in the Chinese whispery game. So you have an original message and then... Uh, Someone says that this is and so on, and at the end of the day, you have a, like a distorted image of the philosopher. But the history of philosophy as a research field. So what uh, we the, what we do in Naples, at what I try to do, is like uh, uh, yeah, a, a proper research field. So it has uh, like uh, a strong methodology, which is the philological one. So you have to read uh, not only all the books uh, of a given author, but also the different edition of these books. So, so you have to uh, look at uh, the differences maybe between these different editions. Then you have to read like uh, uh, other uh, papers like uh, unpublished papers, correspondences, uh, drafts, manuscripts, and this kind of stuff uh, so that you have uh, like uh, a grasp of the evolution and the actual message of this philosopher. And this is like the methodology. And then you have two major goals, which are obviously connected. That is, uh, the first is like understanding philosophy in a, greater, in a greater context. So understanding philosophy in its interaction with the uh, history, of course, so with the society, with the scientific advancement of a given epoch, or with the literature and so on and so on. So expand the context, not only to philosophy, but to the whole cultural environment. And the second goal is to understand philosophy in a dynamic way. So like something that changes and evolves, and we may even say adapt to its own cultural environment. So like uh, an ever-changing uh, human uh, attempt to interpret uh, and solve the problem of a given time. And so obviously these are two very high goals. So it's like uh, the ultimate goal for, a, for an historian of philosophy like me. So actually when we are trained as a historian of philosophy, generally we start from one single philosopher uh, it's uh, what I've done uh, in my career too, since uh, in, uh, during the PhD I've studied Avenarius. And uh, as I said, uh, I studied uh, his work, his correspondence, his unpublished papers. And then after uh, uh, my PhD thesis, which, uh, that was also my first book, I started to look at the bigger picture. So to investigate the relation of Avenarius with his uh, peers, with his uh, uh, with other uh, like important figures of the time, and so to understand Avenarius' role in his epoch, and uh, this is uh, what uh, the result uh, 
the result of this research is what it's uh, presented in the book we are discussing now. So it's like uh, an analysis of Avenarius' role in the broader picture of, as you said, the psychological and philosophical debate around what is scientific psychology and is it possible a scientific psychology? Yeah, it's, it is a fascinating history and, and you definitely make very clear um, that uh, Richard Avenarius had a had a a major role, you know, in the in the founding of psychology and in, in conceptualizing it as a as a science, as opposed to just this particular branch of of philosophy. Um, so maybe maybe um, you, to to sort of set the stage for the debate between William Willem Volt and Richard Avenarius. Uh, what was psychology like, you know, when they when they started, uh, you know, their debate? I mean, how did how did science begin to enter the picture as um, uh, a science of psychology? Um, yeah, so so kind of set the stage for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the first thing to say is that uh, at the time, psychology was actually a part of philosophy. So it was like that uh, since uh, Aristotle, Aristotle, since uh, psychology, as uh, the words say, is like uh, the study of the psyche, so of the soul. And uh, it was uh, the part of, a, of a philosophy that uh, investigated the soul. And uh, actually, we should ask ourselves why this debate started in the 19th century. What happened in this century to promote and give rise to such debate. And, of course, the answer is that there were major changes in science. And so the the second thing that that we should ask ourselves is what was science back then? Of course, we know that science, as we now mean science, begins with the scientific revolution. So that great change that goes from Galileo to Newton. And so the science was actually like physics. So it rested on a mathematical understanding of the world. It rested on the use of experiment, so of observation, but in an experimental context. And we may say that it was connected with a general, with a general worldview that is the materialistic worldview. So in order to understand something scientifically, you should explain this phenomena, the phenomena you are investigating, in terms of matter and motion. So motion passes from one piece of matter to the other, and this creates all the physical phenomena that we observe, study, measure, and so on. But... Since the scientific revolution, there were like two major fields that like resisted to this kind of approach, or at least they were problematic. So people discussed whether this kind of scientific approach could be used in these two fields. And these two fields were the living beings and, of course, consciousness. And we may say that the great change that happened between the end of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century is that for the first time, this this kind of scientific approach uh, was used successfully to explain living beings. 
So we have like uh, the great advancement in chemistry. Let's just think of Lavoisier with the explanation of uh, respiration as a kind of uh, burning of elements. So, uh, or like uh, in Germany, Liebig, uh, who studied uh, the chemical reaction in plants and the role of phosphorus and this kind of things. So one big uh, uh, stone in this uh, new understanding of science was the chemical uh, revolution. Another important piece was uh, the discovery of uh, the electricity in the animals, so like uh, galvanism and this kind of stuff. So they started to learn that uh, the, like the impulses, the information uh, in the living beings uh, travel uh, thanks to electricity. And another important uh, part is uh, the development of cell theory. So the idea that the plants and the animals uh, are just made of cells, yeah. And uh, another big part is the development of the so-called principle of conservation of energy that led to a, like a new version of the materialistic worldview. So it's not like uh, just like uh, matter and motion, but it's matter and the energy. Energy changes through different uh, kind of forms, so like electricity, motion, uh, uh, chemical force, uh, magnetism, uh, heat, and so on. But it always remains the same quantity, and we can uh, analyze and express mathematically this uh, quantity, this uh, quantity of uh, energy that passes uh, from one uh, uh, from one form to the other. So once uh, this uh, um, gave rise to the idea that we can, uh, I repeat, successfully, because uh, even before people said uh, maybe we can understand uh, living beings uh, through the physics. It was also an idea of Cartesius, uh, the man-machine or the animal that are machine. But now this is uh, like successfully done. It's actual science that people does uh, and that gave result. So once uh, we have the idea that we can uh, and are investigating living beings through the, uh, through the instrument of science, the remaining question is, uh, can we apply the same approach to consciousness? And uh, if so, how? And uh, we may say that uh, there were uh, different uh, uh, answers to this question. So the first answer was a negative one, and is represented in particular by Kant and the positivist philosopher August Comte, since they say, no, it's not possible to have a, a scientific understanding of consciousness because Kant said that it wasn't possible because we cannot apply mathematics to the inner experience. And Comte said it is not possible because we cannot observe our own inner experiences, since uh, inner observation alter uh, the phenomena that we are supposed uh, to be studying. And this is like the first negative answer. A second answer was the one by a German philosopher, uh, Herbert, which is not very known, but it was very important back then, because he said, uh, uh, we should do like physics. But physics, it's not actually based on observation. It rests on metaphysics because concepts like matter and force are actually metaphysical concepts, are like a construction that we 
imposed upon the phenomena. So if we want to have a scientific psychology, we should do the same and build a metaphysical psychology, and then we can apply mathematics to it. So it uh, builded this uh, metaphysical psychology based on the concept of representation and force. And upon this con concept, he built like a, me a psychical mechanic and a dynamical uh, a psychical dynamic. So the analogy with the physics was uh, like uh, self-evident. But this, uh, this answer didn't uh, last very long because uh, a third answer arrived, and it is one of the one, one of the answers discussed in my book. And we may say it's the um, psychophysiological answer. So the idea that we can study consciousness and the inner phenomena and mind, whatever we want to call it, through its uh, uh, physiological correlate. So uh, we can uh, study the body, we can uh, study the nerves, uh, uh, the brain, and uh, have uh, like this application of mathematics ex experiment uh, and uh, mechanical uh, worldview through this uh, physical correlate of the psychological phenomena. And uh, uh, this is not the last answer, we may say, because uh, then a fourth answer came that we may call the answer of uh, the Geisteswissenschaften, which is the German word for like um, uh, moral sciences or human sciences or uh, cultural sciences. So that there is no, uh, there is not only one uh, translation for this term. So uh, literally, it is the spiritual sciences, and uh, this answer said. Uh, Yes, uh, psychology, like uh, all the spiritual sciences, are actually sciences, but uh, just of a different kind. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, try to adopt uh, the methods, uh, the goals, uh, and the approach of physics, uh, because uh, the physical world and the spiritual world are just different. They, uh, they are separated. So each science... Uh, each group of scientists should have its own methods, its own goals, its own uh, approaches. So psychology is part of this Geisteswissenschaften, and so psychology should have uh, its own method. So it's like, okay, it's a science, but it's a different kind of science. And uh, uh, the, interesting, the interesting thing is that uh, this is like just a, uh, a general schema that I tried uh, to sketch, but the things were very complicated. Let's just think of the fact that uh, one of the major figures in my book uh, and in the history of psychology, of course, uh, which is Willem Wundt, can be considered both as a representative of uh, the psychophysiological approach and of the Geisteswissenschaften approach. So. It's not so straightforward to put every every thinker in its own box. Right, right. No, that I think that that was very good um, to yeah to give us a good idea of how their debate came up and and where Wundt uh, begins sort of. Um, so maybe you can say something more specifically about you know since the the book sort of focuses on the two positions in a way, um, well, you just outlined four, but, um, you know, Wundt and Avenarius are the two protagonists basically in the book with two 
you know, conflicting, I think, um, uh, conceptions of, of what psychology could be as a science. Um, so could you give us, you know, an idea of, you know, what was Wundt's position um, a bit more than you just did? And then, of course, Avenaris, who's sort of the, the star of your show. Yes, as I said, the Wundt was like a health representative of the um, psychophysiological approach and therefore of the Geisteswissenschaften approach uh, because uh, it was uh, part uh, a representative of the first one because uh, actually uh, he studied the medicine at first so he had not uh, like uh, a formation uh, in philosophy uh, as it was typical for the people who usually studied uh, uh, psychology and uh, he uh, wrote this very famous book, this uh, milestone in the development of scientific uh, psychology that is uh, the principle of physiological psychology. So as the title itself says, it is uh, the idea of studying uh, psychology from uh, a physiological perspective. Moreover, he founded one of the first laboratories for experimental psychology worldwide, which is the, his famous laboratory in Leipzig, uh, uh, which is part of Germany. And uh, the important thing of this laboratory is that uh, uh, since, as I said, uh, this new physiological psychology was a new science, uh, there were like no traditional uh, uh, paths uh, in the academic uh, for people who wanted to become uh, an experimental psychologist. So if people wanted to learn this new psychology, the first uh, place to go was at the Wundt laboratory. So just to give an idea, during his life, Wundt had more than 160 doctoral students alone. So without counting uh, like uh, all the people that just went there for a brief period of time uh, to learn something and to get in touch with what uh, uh, people were the, were uh, doing in this laboratory. So it's like all the second generation uh, were influenced or directly trained by Wundt. And this is the reason why often in the history of psychology or in the history of philosophy, we find Wundt as the representative of physiological psychology. But on the other hand, he always like stressed the limits of this kind of approach. The idea that uh, the ultimate goal is not to study the connection between uh, the physiological side and the psychological side, because the ultimate goal is to, get, is to have a grasp, is to understand uh, mental life alone. So is to understand uh, the psyche. So the idea of uh, using the physiological approach is just like a method. It's not like a goal. And this, uh, this is, I think, uh, a, big, um, a big difference to make. Is uh, the physiological approach just a method to learn something about uh, the mental life or is the physiological approach like uh, the ultimate goal? So the goal of psychology is to study the connection between the physical uh, side and uh, the mental side. Because in the first case, we just use uh, like physiological stimulus uh, to give rise uh, to certain uh, psychical phenomena and we must then investigate uh, the psychical phenomena and uh, 
most important of all, from an uh, introspective point of view, so with self-observation. And uh, this is uh, like the turning point uh, between uh, Wundt conception and Avenarius conception, because Avenarius, uh, on the contrary, tried to establish uh, this new scientific experimental uh, psychology, but uh, stating that uh, its ultimate goal, uh, its uh, whole essence, we may say, it's the investigation of the relation between the physiological side and the mental life and the psychical side. And so the fundamental method of psychology is the experimental one. Experiment is not just like an aid to self-observation, but experiment is the fundamental method of psychology, the only method that we have to investigate the psychical phenomena. So this is like a great turning point. And it is like written in the definition of psychology that Avenarius gave and that was very influential. And this the idea that uh, the psych- uh, psychology, scientific psychology, doesn't deal with inner phenomena or inner observation or whenever we want to call it, but with the whole experience, so not like just a part, uh, a specific area of the experience, with the whole experience, whatever experience, but in its dependency upon uh, the individual, or more specifically, in its dependency upon the brain. So it's the definition itself of psychology that uh, affirms this dependency upon the brain. And this, of course, was uh, like a materialistic step uh, for uh, Wundt, and this gave rise to this uh, controversy between uh, Wundt and Avenarius. Okay, so just to just to clarify, so um, so basically, Wundt um, em- embraced the use of let's just say broadly physiological or physical methods, um, but they were mainly just to prompt various sorts of states of consciousness, and then like separately, you would you would examine those states of consciousness through intuition or, or introspection or something like that. And then, and then Avenarius, on the other hand, sort of embraced all of the materialistic um, implications of the method and just saying, no, what these methods are doing is actually showing us what the grounds are of these um, uh, conscious states. And uh, we're actually learning about those conscious states through these methods, and not just, you know, using the methods to 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 prompt them. Was is that would that be correct? Yeah, it is correct. Maybe we can add uh, uh, another step uh, to have a better understanding of this uh, uh, contrast uh, between the two, and this is the concept of uh, psychical causality, because uh, this is another major argument in this debate. Because Wundt actually believed that uh, there is a psychical causality. So we can and should explain the occurrence of a, of a psychical phenomena through its psychical antecedents. So uh, it's like one representation gives rise to another and to another. So there is like a proper causality between the psychical phenomena themselves. On the other hand, Avenarius rejected the idea of a psychical causality. If we look at mental life, we cannot explain, 
explain why a certain phenomena, uh, a certain psychical phenomena occurred looking at these it is um, psychical antecedent because there is no such thing like as a psychical causality. So in order to have a science, obviously we should be able to explain why a certain phenomena occurred. So if one believes in psychical causality, one can affirm that uh, psychology can look at mental lives uh, at, at mental life alone because uh, once we investigate the psychical phenomena we find this uh, psychical causality and then we can explain uh, this phenomena on the other hand if one doesn't believe in uh, psychical causality once we observe the psychical phenomena we cannot explain anything because we doesn't have this kind of connection that are capable of explaining the occurrence of this phenomena so in order to explain why a certain phenomena occurred we must search for another causality or at least another form of dependency so in order to explain scientifically the psychical phenomena for avenarius and this kind of thinkers we must necessarily look at the uh, parallel causality that is the one uh, of the brain. So this phenomena, this psychical phenomena can be explained, can be explained only through their uh, uh, cerebral uh, physical uh, correlate, uh, so through what's happening uh, in the brain. Otherwise, there is no psychology and it cannot be a science because it cannot explain uh, the phenomena that uh, the science uh, investigates. Okay, so um, so one of the, you, you define, or, or, or Avenarius, um, Define psychology as you put it. Defines it in terms of its of its point of view, and you you kind of give a a, a definition as the object of psychology. You know what it's it's what it treats right as its subject matter is um, the experience as as a dependent uh, as dependent on system on on a particular system. So they're both looking at experience. That that seems to be the you know, consciousness, conscious experience seems to be like the, uh, the phenomenon. Uh, but, uh, from Avenarius perspective, um, it's this experience as dependent on a system. Could you, could you explain, you know, how he defined, you know, his definition? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this, uh, like adds uh, yet another part of the controversy, which is, uh, uh, when uh, earlier I sketched all the possible all the possible answer to the problem of uh, whether uh, um, scientific psychology is possible, so the one gave by Kant, uh, by Herbert, uh, by the physiological approach and the Geisteswissenschaften approach, all this answer have in common the fact that they start from a dualistic perspective, so from the idea that uh, there is the physical world and the psychological world. So there is uh, like matter and uh, this kind of phenomena and there is a mind on the other side. And uh, another great changes, uh, uh, another great change brought by Avenarius is the fact that uh, he tried to establish the physiological approach upon uh, 
a monistical perspective. So upon the idea that there is no such difference between the physical world and the psychological world, because instead we should just start from the experience. And in the experience, we don't find this division between like inner experience or, or outer experience. All experience is just like homogeneous. So there are no different regions, separated regions that can be investigated differently because they are heterogeneous. And this is like another um, another uh, difference in uh, Avenarius and Wundt. So when I said that uh, he, tr- he defined psychology as the science that regards ex- experience in its dependency upon the individual, it is implicated also like this uh, monistic uh, approach because, as I said, it's the whole experience, whatever experience, from the point of view of its dependency upon the individual. So, for example, like a tree or an apple can be seen both as a psychological object or as a physical object. It depends upon the point of view. If I consider uh, like the apple in its dependency upon uh, uh, the tree, uh, the ray of light, uh, the chemical reaction that happens that uh, uh, allow the development of this fruit, it is a physical object. If I consider the apple in its dependency upon myself, upon the fact that I can see this apple uh, through my eyes, through uh, what's happening in my brain, then immediately the apple is uh, like uh, a psychological object. So it is the point of view that uh, makes the difference uh, in uh, whatever we are regarding an object as a physical object or uh, a psychological object. And uh, this is like uh, one of the aspects that were then partly taken by Wundt himself because he tried to uh, respond to this new development by developing his own new theory about uh, the difference between the immediate experience and the mediate experience. So he accepted the idea that we cannot define psychology by defining a certain area of investigation, a certain region of the experience, but uh, psychology can deal with whatever experience because it deals with this immediate experience. So we can say the experience that has both the subjective and the objective ingredients in it, while uh, physics came later and it tries to get rid of all the subjective subjective, uh, ingredients of the immediate experience and retaining only the objective aspects. So it is mediate because it's not the starting, the original experience, but it's it's like the product of this abstraction of all these subjective elements of the original experience. And so this is like another... um, another uh, element uh, in this debate, but uh, I'm not uh, really sure if this answers uh, your question. <laughs> well, no, it's, um, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, trying to flesh out a little bit about, you know, follow your your presentation in a way of, of you know, how Avenarius is, is sort of in a way struggling to define psychology as something that, that can actually um, uh, advance um, 
and uh, not just depend on introspection, right? Um, so let me, let me ask, let me come at it from a different, one of the, one of the distinctions that, that he draws that, that you also explain is his distinction between what uh, is called an absolute perspective, um, of, and I guess that's myself and my experience, and then the relative perspective of others and their experience. So how does how's that difference between the absolute perspective and the relative perspective, um, you know, help him uh, develop his approach to psychology and its uh, its subject matter? Yeah, it's like uh, one could ask, uh, how can you both believe that uh, uh, psychology is the science that investigated the connection between the um, the physiological side, uh, uh, so the brain, uh, the cerebral substratum, and all this kind of stuff, and the mental side, so like uh, psychical phenomena and so on. Because when I say that uh, psychology studies this connection between the physiological side and the psychological side, it's like uh, you are talking in a dualistic uh, language because you say there is uh, the physiological side, so the physical side on, on the one end and the mental life on the other end. And at the same time, Avenarius affirms that uh, there is no such distinction between the physiological side and the psychical side. So these are like uh, contradicting uh, stances by Avenarius. And this is, uh, in fact, like one of his major goals, since he was not uh, a psychologist uh, uh, like Wundt, but primarily a philosopher. So its uh, first and foremost goal was... Uh, to solve this kind of contradiction. And we may say that it's also like a contradiction between uh, psychology and philosophy, because uh, as I said, psychology deals, deals with this uh, uh, relation and dependency between uh, uh, the physical side and the uh, psychological side. So it starts from the idea that uh, our consciousness, our experience, uh, our uh, mental contents depend upon the brain and the brain interaction with the environment. But on the other end, philosophy says something very different. It says that the experience is our only horizon. We cannot go beyond the experience because if something exists, if something is part of our uh, discourse, of our knowledge, it must be part of the experience uh, because either something is experienced or it is nothing. We cannot talk about it. We cannot say anything about it. So this is like uh, uh, at, the, at the time after Kant, it was uh, uh, like the starting point, uh, the main idea, the basis uh, of all uh, philosophy. But uh, of course, uh, these two approaches, uh, the, the, physiolo the psychological and the philosophical approaches were then conflicted, conflicting because... Uh, uh, for uh, psychology, experience uh, is the result of the interaction between the mind and uh, between the brain and the environment. Uh, so the brain and the environment must be before and beyond the experience uh, to give rise to the experience. And uh, philosophy says the experience is the only starting point, is not the result, is something originary, and there is nothing beyond and before experience. 
So how can we reconcile these two, uh, these two facts, these two stances? And according to Avenarius, the solution is to distinguish the, point, uh, the points of view from which we make this statement. Uh, in particular, he thinks that uh, the philosophical uh, uh, affirmation that uh, uh, we cannot go beyond experience and experience is the only starting point, the only horizon that we have, is made from uh, a first-person perspective. Uh, so it's uh, the I that talk. When I consider my own experience, I cannot go beyond my experience because uh, it's everything I have. It's a little bit like a solipsistic point of view, we, we may say, in, uh, in this uh, case. And uh, the psychological point of view, it's uh, the point of view of uh, the fellow man, of uh, a third person. So it's like a third person perspective. Actually, he believes that when we investigate uh, the psychological connection, we are not referring about ourselves, but we are referring about a third person, a third individual, because we can study the dependency upon uh, the dependency of mental contents upon the brain and upon the environment only by looking at other person. And uh, to make just an example, uh, to take the example uh, of uh, the apple, I cannot say that. Uh, my experience of the apple depends upon the object apple. Because when I consider my experience in the first person point of view, there is only one apple. There is no separation between my experience of it and the object. They are one thing only. So I cannot say that one depends upon the other. On the other hand, when I consider my fellow man, when I consider a third person, I can say that his experience depends upon the object. So that his experience of the apple depends upon the object apple because they are actually two different things. They are actually, we can even say they are empirically separated, his experience of it and the object. And the same goes for uh, the dependency upon the brain. I cannot say that my experience dep depends upon my brain because then uh, it turns out to be something absurd. For example, if I say that my experience depends upon my own brain, so this brain must be an experience too. So it would uh, imply that uh, the whole of my experience depends upon one of its parts which is logically something absurd. Or it would imply that uh, the brain being uh, an experience uh, depends upon himself, uh, upon itself. So it would be like uh, a causa sui experience, uh, something that it's cause of itself. And this is absurd, like from a logical point of view. Or uh, alternatively, we may say, no, the brain, it's not itself uh, an experience, it's something else. But uh, then... Uh, we are going beyond and before the experience and we have already said that we cannot go beyond and before the experience because uh, then the brain would become like a metaphysical uh, uh, object uh, that it's not part of any experience. But on the other end, when we consider the third person, we can actually investigate uh, the dependency of his uh, experience upon its brain and uh, upon uh, what's happening uh, in his uh, body, in his nerves and so on. And this is also part of what we said early, earlier of uh, the shift from the introspective uh, 
conception of psychology and the experimental conception of psychology because this distinction between the first-person perspective and the third-person person perspective, it's not, it's not like a philosophical trick to avoid with some kind of sophism uh, the problem of the relation between, between the philosophical and the psychological approach. Uh, according to Avenarius, uh, it's actually like uh, uh, how psychology works, because the psychology doesn't work uh, introspectively, but it works by observing other people, because in the experiment, it is what we do. We observe other people, we observe the subject of the experiment, and we relate their experience with what's happening uh, in their brain and so on. And just to uh, uh, add one uh, final uh, element in this, uh, in this argument, this doesn't mean that according to Avenarius, uh, we cannot say that our experience depends upon uh, our brain. The point is that uh, we don't experience this dependency. We don't learn this dependency by looking at ourselves. We learn this dependency by looking at other people, and then we like generalize, we extend this knowledge to ourselves. It's like uh, for every knowledge, we we know that we have like a stomach and uh, uh, blood running through our veins, but we generally have this kind of knowledge because someone observed other people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so that that was very helpful. So. Um, you know, I guess as, you know, philosophers and, and, um, uh, you know, they're immediately going to raise the objection that, um, well, we, you know, either in the form of the other minds problem, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm, I assume, or I infer that somehow you have consciousness, although, uh, you know, that's based on your behavior, or, you know, some form of, of that type of inference. Um, uh, so I, so h- how does Avenarius get around that, you might say, epistemic problem or the problem of, you know, solipsism? I mean, from, you know, from Descartes, you know, made it very clear. Um, uh, how, did, how did he overcome that particular issue or did, it, did he just not really notice it uh, well, I mean, he must have noticed it, but um, yeah, how did he? How did he overcome that? Yeah, he was pretty aware of the problem uh, of other minds. In fact, we may say that uh, the fellow man, so uh, the third person, uh, for Avenarius and in Avenarius philosophy, have like uh, a double role. From one perspective, the one that we discussed, they are like. Uh, um, an answer to many of our problems, like, uh, as I said, the problem of how can we reconcile the um, psychological approach and the philosophical approach by distinguishing these two perspectives, the first-person perspective and the third-person perspective. But uh, in his philosophy, the fellow man is also a potential source of problem. We may say is the foremost uh, source of problem, of uh, philosophical problem, especially in the field of the theory of knowledge, because uh, actually Avenario says, okay, we must start from the experience, and in the experience we find the two major uh, uh, elements, uh, which are myself 
and the environment, uh, which are not like uh, something uh, completely different. It's just like uh, part of the experience, both uh, the myself, uh, so the I and the environment. And uh, then there are uh, the fellow humans. And uh, the main question, the main question, the main problem is. Uh, what are the fellow humans? Uh, uh, what uh, is their uh, peculiarity, their characteristic? And uh, Avenario says they are part of the environment, so they are like uh, any other element uh, of my surroundings. But uh, there is uh, another element. So the fact that uh, their uh, movements, their motion, doesn't have only a mechanical meaning. So it's not just like uh, matter and energy that passes from one part to the other, like in the standard physical uh, uh, elements of the world. But their movements, their motion is also, we may say, a linguistic meaning in the sense that they refer to something else. They have a meaning in the proper sense of the word. And this... uh, the fact that uh, their movements have meaning, uh, nonetheless, uh, is not an experience. Uh, according to Avenarius, it is an hypothesis. So he is very aware that uh, we don't have a direct grasp of the experience of other of uh, other people's mind. So he said that it is a, an hypothesis, and uh, it must always and will always remain an hypothesis because the only way to confirm. Uh, such hypothesis would be actually being the fellow man, but we know that this is impossible. So we cannot, we can just uh, um, like make this hypothesis that uh, the movements of the other people have meaning, and have meaning in the sense that uh, they are like my movements because I have an experience. I know that my movements doesn't have only a mechanical meaning, but also a linguistic meaning because my movements refer to the object of the environment, refer to uh, my thoughts and feelings and so on. So he's very aware that uh, this is a problematic uh, area. And uh, as I said, it is like the most uh, uh, important source of problem because uh, there is like uh, the possibility of misinterpreting uh, uh, the meaning of uh, uh, of the fellow man assertion of the fellow man movements, because uh, we say, okay, the fellow man movements refer to something. So, what do they refer uh, to? And uh, Avenarius' uh, answer is that they refer to object of the environment, thoughts and feelings in the same sense, in the same sense as my own movements refer to uh, the object of the environment, my thoughts and my feelings. But the uh, uh, the other answer to this uh, question is that uh, they have a meaning in the sense that they refer to what's inside my fellow man. And this is uh, the phenomena that Avenarius calls uh, introjection. This is the moment that uh, gives rise to the idea that the experience uh, is something that it's hidden, that it's uh, inside people. The moments when we misinterpret uh, misinterpret the fellow man uh, movements and the fellow man assertion. So once we project the meanings of the fellow man assertion inside themselves, then 
the idea of the inner world arise and then the split in the experience arise. So the idea that there is an inner world and an outer world, the idea that there is a psychical side and the physical side and all the dualism that Avenarius wants to overcome. So uh, this introjection was a very influential uh, argument that he uh, developed. Okay, so yeah, so it's it's it it, but it, I guess from a from a contemporary perspective, um, and our own uh, philosophical debates about um, you know Thomas Nagel's work on you know what is it like to be a bad that we don't have the proper you know we we can't understand we don't we don't have a way to really explain consciousness or or David Chalmers who has who has done a lot of work in in sort of saying that there's a hard problem of consciousness and, and it's just not going to be solved by the usual methods and we need to somehow change either our view of psychology or maybe, or, or our view of physics and just include some sort of proto-consciousness as a basic quantity. I mean, these these are the contemporary debates, you know, they're not, and, and there's these are philosophers putting this forward, but as you note, Avenarius was a philosopher, and is it, w- would you just say that he he would just not be impressed with their um, arguments about the difficulty explain, of explaining consciousness scientifically? Yeah, I think he would not be impressed because uh, actually, what uh, Nagel and Chalmers said it's pretty similar. So I think that. Uh, what is similar is the idea that uh, uh, like uh, what uh, psychology actually do does uh, every day it's not explaining consciousness because uh, even if we explain like the psychical and the, the psychophysiological mechanism which is something that we can do and uh, which is something that it's the actual scope uh, the actual purpose of psychology we are not explaining consciousness. And this is like part of the difference that Avenarius made between the first person and the third person's perspective. So consciousness, in the proper sense of the word, it's the first person perspective. But as I said earlier, psychology has a different point of view. In fact, Avenarius says that that psychology doesn't deal with this first-person perspective, but with what he calls the contents of the assertion. So it doesn't relate consciousness and brain events. It doesn't connect mental life in first person with the cerebral correlate. It correlates this uh, content of assertion, so this uh, like statement that uh, the third person does with the third person uh, brain activity. So he's very aware that the psychology cannot explain uh, consciousness and that uh, the psychophysical approach uh, is not uh, intended to explain us uh, or uh, like, uh, yeah, uh, giving a grasp of what is like uh, to live something in first person so as Nagel would say okay okay um, right okay so um, how did how did the so Avenaris I think you, he was 
he was one of Wundt's many students, right? And um, uh, how, how did they, you know, so initially, uh, as I take it, they were, you know, Avenaris, of course, was, was a follower of, of Wundt in a way. Um, how did they, you know, come to part ways? I mean, was it, uh, yeah, how did, the, how did they come to uh, occupy these very different positions? Yeah, we can say that uh, uh, until now we discussed it like uh, the philosophical side of my work, but uh, it also has uh, like uh, an historical side, which is uh, the reconstruction of the relationship between Avenarius, Wundt, and this uh, uh, circle of uh, Wundt pupils and uh, scholars that uh, gravitated uh, like uh, around Wundt. So. Uh, it is so because uh, uh, actually this uh, this research I've done uh, started from uh, my reading of a pretty famous uh, relatively in this uh, field of study um, paper by, by Kurt Danziger, who is called the, the Positivist Repudiation of Wundt, who analyzed the, like uh, the fact that a series of uh, uh, of pupils uh, of Wundt pupils like repudiate uh, the master because they uh, started to reject Wundt ideas and to embrace the idea uh, the ideas of these two philosophers Mach and Avenarius and so it was like uh, on the one side there is Wundt and these pupils and on the other side there is uh, Mach there are Mach and Avenarius. Uh, and uh, who are this uh, philosophical uh, uh, trend that uh, played this external influence on the pupils of Wundt. And uh, I wanted to uh, show that uh, this was not a correct uh, account of what happened, because actually Avenarius, uh, it's not properly a pupil of Wundt in the sense that he trained himself as a psychologist in his laboratory, but he was certainly part of Wundt Circle because um, he obtained this chair for philosophy that was formerly uh, the chair that Wundt held, held uh, uh, in Zurich. They uh, started together this journal uh, that was very important back then, the Quarterly for Scientific uh, Psychology. So uh, there was a very close connection between the two. And uh, I think that uh, the reason why they um, they got together in the first place is that they had a similar idea of the relationship between psychology and philosophy because they wanted, as the title of the journal said, to promote the scientific philosophy. And the scientific philosophy was the philosophy that... Uh, was not uh, based upon uh, speculation, but was based upon the actual findings of science, and in particular upon the findings of the new experimental, physiological, and scientific uh, uh, psychology, because uh, people asked themselves uh, a question about the functioning of mind, the functioning of knowledge uh, during all the history of philosophy, but now that uh, what this new psychology was started to developing, we could answer ourselves, uh, we could answer um, the question of how knowledge and mind function, not upon uh, philosophical speculation, but uh, with the instrument of science. So they wanted to promote this uh, uh, 
this dialogue between uh, philosophy and uh, psychology. And it was important that Wundt, as I said earlier, was like uh, a psychologist with a medical training, while Avenarius was a philosopher with a philosophical training. So the fact that uh, the two had the same goal was like... Uh, um, a reinforcement because uh, Avenarius could rest on Wundt for the philosophical scientific aspect and Wundt could rest on Avenarius for uh, like saying, uh, okay, it's not like just us uh, psychologists that say that what we do is important, but uh, there are philosophers like this Avenarius that also recognize the importance of this new psychology. So these two uh, Finker said this common goal, but uh, all started to fall apart after Avenarius published his major work, which is uh, the Critique of Pure Experience, because uh, it is the first book where Avenarius then uh, expresses uh, uh, in the most clear way is uh, like, uh, as Wundt believes, materialistic idea of psychology. So Wundt uh, won't does, didn't want to have anything in common with Avenarius anymore because uh, he, uh, rejected, his, uh, he re rejected this kind of uh, materialistic approach. And so he wanted to uh, la like draw a line between himself and Avenarius. But then the, the curious thing is that Avenarius' idea uh, became very popular among other pupils of Wundt, among psychologists that were actually trained in Wundt Circle, like his own assistant or other psychologists like Tichener and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, we are almost out of time, uh, I hate to say, and there's so much to talk about um, in the book, but I suppose our listeners, I will encourage them to, to read uh, for themselves. Um, but we, we are out of time, and so I like to close with a final question about uh, your own research. You know, what, where do you go from here? What are, are you working on some other figure in this period, or um, what, are, what are your current uh, and near future research projects? Yeah, actually, I would like, uh, as I said, uh, uh, the ultimate goal for an historian philosophy is always expanding, uh, like... Uh, the field of interest, uh, the context uh, you are looking at. So uh, I started with Davenarius, then I made this book about Avenarius and this debate uh, with Wundt and the Wundt pupils. But uh, I would like to write like uh, a sort of uh, philosophical history of psychology in the 19th century that uh, uh, like uh, exposes also uh, the schema that I tried to sketch early of the different answer to the problem of uh, scientific uh, psychology. So like a, a philosophical history of psychology from Kant to say um, Freud, like uh, who is uh, like uh, the last uh, uh, scientific psychologist uh, in the sense of this uh, debate and also the first uh, representative of a whole new branch, a new idea of uh, psychology. So it's like a turning point. It, it would be a, a good uh, end to this uh, like development. 
Okay, very good. Um, so um, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with New Books and Philosophy, and uh, I wish you luck with your, um, with your new work. Thank you, and again, thank you for having me. You've been listening to my interview with Chiara Russo-Kraus, a researcher at the University of Naples, Federico II. We've been talking about her new book, Bunt, Avenarius, and Scientific Psychology, a debate at the turn of the 20th century, which is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.